0: The question for today is, what does God want from you? What does God want from you? Um, When my brother was in grad school, he lived in a rented house just outside north of Orlando, Florida. And uh, this is dating back 2004. And he, uh, his wife is from Albania, so in the summer they were taking off for multiple weeks, probably a month plus, to go back to the Balkans, visit her family. And While they were gone, a friend of his, who had just graduated from seminary, asked if the, he could use their place as a, like a personal retreat center. He said, great. Meanwhile, they're off in the Balkans. Uh, meanwhile, a massive hurricane, some of you might remember this one, Hurricane Charlie, swept through... Florida causing just a vast swath of devastation, destruction, chewing up everything in his path including my grandmother's house which is in far southern Florida. And so after the storm went through my father decided he was going to go down check on my grandmother's house and, uh, and while he was driving down he just described the landscape was just completely changed. Entire forest of trees were gone. Um, all, the road signs were all missing. Entire neighborhoods had been like swept off the map. And so while he's um, going down, uh, he decides on the way to my grandmother's house, he, he says "Well, he could stop by my brother's place just to check on it, make sure the roof wasn't ripped off and all their stuff getting rained on or something like that. So he goes up to my brother's rental and, and he has a key, so he opens the door and he's surprised. Oh there's a guy sitting there on the couch in his, like, pajama pants drinking coffee. And um, my brother had forgot to tell him that he had letting someone use the house. So, so get the scene. My, my father is in his work clothes, ready to go, you know, do whatever he can to fix up my grandmother's place and help people in that neighborhood. He's standing at the door in his work clothes, and he opens the door, and there he sees this young man sitting in his pajama pants drinking coffee. And behind him... The entire neighborhood, in fact, the entire state of Florida is literally, literally crying out for help. People's lives are in shambles right then. And so uh, they start talking, and my, my dad's sitting there getting ready to help these people, and, and he finds out that the story that this guy is sitting here, he's taking the time, he just finished seminary, and he decided to devote several weeks to just sitting and listening to God. What would you have me do? What would you have me do? And my father, who's never been accused of being a subtle man, (laughs) looked at him and said, let me get this straight. (laughs) There are millions of people right outside your door, literally crying out for help, and you're sitting in your pajama pants wondering what God would have you do. I resonate with my father on this one. I kind of wish I was there in my workbook so I could just kick that man in the rear. Like, put on some pants. Help someone. Do something. You, you don't know what to do. There are literally millions of things to do at that moment. Millions of people actually crying out for help. Do something. Anything. Pick one. doesn't take a rocket science it scientists figured this one out. Um, so years have passed since I first heard that story. That was 2004. And since that time, I've become um, more experienced and hopefully a bit wiser. But I have to admit, my bias is still entirely towards action. Do something. I still relish the idea of kicking that man in the rear. <laughs> and I think that's part of the reason why I fit in so well here. Because you guys are mostly, not all of you, but most of you are like that too. Like, I could off the top of my head, in fact, I did this the other night just to think about it. I could off the top of my head list 60, 70, 80 of you who are doing something, who are activistic, who are not just serving in ministries, but you're doing something, with, you're leveraging your work career for God's kingdom. That you're working outside of the church. You're, you're starting nonprofits and leading things and doing things all over the place. You guys are doing something. Many, many of you are. And, and that just fits so well. That resonates with me. I love it. You know, this uh, last week alone, and I actually counted this week because I thought it might be a significant indicator for you. I received 10 invitations last week from you to participate and some good work outside of our church. Ten, just last week. We are action-oriented people. Now, I love this, but having said this, um, from my own heart and from observing you, I've kind of come to see the danger also of unbridled activism Of thinking that what God really, really wants from me is just to do and do and do and do more. And uh, this came clear to me probably about four years ago. I was at a a seminar with a whole bunch of like super action-oriented, activistic leaders. We were It was politicians and pastors all in the same room. All these Christian leaders who are trying to change the world, do something exciting. And um, we're sitting there and this guy, this seminar leader, Dave Wiedis, worth checking up if you've never heard of him. He's local. He's, he's, he's pushing us hard that all of us need to take a time out and start taking bigger breaks in our life. That we need to stop. We need to slow down. We need to rest more. And he's pushing harder and harder. And I can see a lot of people around me are getting comfortable, uncomfortable at this point. At, at one point, he actually stops and says this. This is a direct quote, or at least from my notes. It says, if you are not practicing a Sabbath, like taking one entire day off per week, if you're not practicing a Sabbath, what does that say about you and your view of God? Why do you feel you must work seven days a week? And now the best part about this is, and the reason why it was so memorable is because as soon as he said this, the politician next to me got so noticeably uncomfortable that he couldn't stand it anymore, and he burst out, and he was like, what are we supposed to do? Just sit back and watch the world go to hell in a handbasket. Every moment we're not moving forward is is a moment when we're losing ground. And um, you know how it's a lot easier to see other people's faults than it is your own? So This is one of those moments of clarity where I looked at the guy and I thought, this guy really thinks that it's his job to save the world. Like, this guy really thinks that God needs him to save the world. That if he doesn't step up and do work seven days a week, that, that God will somehow fail, that God needs him. Someone needs to tell him that the position of Savior of the universe has already failed. And so I, 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 like, I'm sitting here mocking him in my mind, and then I thought, oh, no. Do I think that I have to save the world, too? So we're in our series, um, Most Important Thing About You, and we've been talking about the most important thing about you that of first importance is what you think, that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, we're transformed by the renewing of our minds, that it's, it's not just our minds, it's not just about what you think, but it starts with your mind, and we've got the quote that we show again and again, week after week, it goes like this. What you think about is what you love, and what you love is what you do, and what you do over and over again is who you are becoming. Friends, that is so true. What you think about, what rests in your mind, what you fixate on, the stories we tell ourselves, it stirs our heart, and our hearts, it leads us to action. Our hearts always lead, it ends up in our hands, in our feet, in our tongue, in our eyes, and what you do over and over again becomes a habit, becomes a character, becomes who you are becoming. So we've been saying, again and again, that we want to we get in there, we want to leverage this for Christ's sake, and we want to make this a way in which we are going to root out the lies and fix our minds on Jesus Christ, fix our minds on what is true, fix on our minds on who God really is. And today, I want you to listen closely to this. Today, the lie that I want to talk about is a really, really good lie. And like all really, really good lies... It's got a lot of truth mixed in. It goes like this. God needs me to do his work. God needs my service. Maybe maybe you've heard it this way. The only hands and feet Jesus have are yours. If I don't do, 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 God's will will not be done. That's the lie. So what does God want from me? The answer is he wants my service. He wants me to do things. Like any really good lie, it's, it's the truth twisted, just a little bit off, but it's twisted enough that if you believe this, if you accept this, if you let this form your life, it's going to twist your relationship with God, your relationship with yourself, and your relationship with everyone else. Our text for today is Luke chapter 10, 38 through 42, and it's a very familiar story if you've growing up in church, but it's a story that if we let it, I think could maybe straighten out what's twisted, that it could recalibrate my overly activistic heart, and maybe yours too. So it goes like this, Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, and Luke, you're always traveling somewhere, as they're on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Now, this is familiar territory, a familiar home, a familiar village. This is Bethany just outside of Jerusalem. And if, if you read through the Gospels, you know they're passing through this area all the time. And Martha, these are, these are familiar people. Martha is the sister of Mary and Lazarus. So you know how... Um, you know how if you have a really intense moment with someone, one of those really like life-shaping moments, it can forge a deep relationship? Like this is the plot of like every movie out there, you know, or at least every other one, right? Two strangers get thrown in together. They have to face impossible odds. And then at the end, they overcome the odds and become best friends or they get married or something, right? You know the story. It's a it's cliche, but there's something to this. I mean, if you think about the people who walked with you in those moments of deepest stress, of deepest sorrow, of greatest joy, even, I mean, you hear about guys who go through the through, um, military, combat service together. They've become a band of brothers. They might only spend a couple weeks together, but those, those weeks are so intense, they're like connected for life. Or even uh, some of you might think sporting, sporting events, you know, they, uh, you, you get this big championship game, and you only knew those kids for a season, but battling that battle together forks you for life. There's actually a, a word, if you Google this, it's called communitas. It's the type of community that's only formed in those deep, intense moments of life This is one of the reasons why going on mission together, going to Bulgaria together, forms amazing relationships, things of that nature. But I digress. The point is, is Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, they have communitas with Jesus. Like, they only show up a few times in the gospel. But when they do, it's usually pretty intense. Like, it's right before Jesus is going to die. He stops at their house, and Mary's like, I know you're going to die. I'm going to get you ready for it. And she anoints him. Or, or the best. Um, Lazarus dies. Jesus comes and he weeps and he weeps and he weeps over him. And then he raises him back to life. Like, it doesn't get much more intense than being raised back from the dead. So you see, my point being, these, these are not just people. This is not just strangers. So, of course, when Jesus stops by their village and comes into their town, of course they're going to stay with Martha. Of course, it is a culture of hospitality. Of course, of course, she's going to more than be excited to have 13 hungry, big, hawking men stay with her. This will be great. So we see, she opens her home, and verse 39 reads like this: She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by the preparations, that all the preparations that had to be made. So picture this 13 large, hungry men come into Martha's house. And Martha's running around doing what a woman should do in that culture. She's getting all the preparations ready. These men need fed. They're going to need beds to sleep in. Like, there's a lot of work to do right now. But Mary, what's Mary doing? Mary's like hanging out with the boys. This is, um, I know we, we don't usually read the Bible this way, but this scene is almost Comical. We're supposed to see here the moment when, when this activistic, angry politician who's like God needs us to save the world runs into this, <laughs> the seminary student sitting on the couch and his campaign drinking coffee. What would God have me do? Like you don't know what's going to happen, but but you know something's going to happen. This is this is a good moment. This is the moment when we're supposed to ask literally, literally, what does the Lord want from us? What does the Lord want from us? And we're going to come up with Mary and Martha, two vastly different answers. So, so Martha Martha is activistic. She's a go-getter. She's practical. She's task-oriented. Martha is a woman who gets things done. So full disclosure here, I like Martha. Like, I like her. So I've been, um, the last few weeks, we're, as many of you know, we're on a hiring campaign right now hiring part-time staff, looking into full-time staff, and I've personally reviewed maybe 200 resumes in the last few weeks. In that, you know what I'm looking for? Martha. Like, man, as soon as I find one, her resume looks awesome. She's like, everyone who works with her like, like, that woman gets things done. Like, I want to work on a project with Martha. I want her on my team. Like, I'm like, I love Martha. Like, if you ask Martha... What does the Lord want from you? She, like, whips out the to-do list. like, this, 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 this. And this is our our plan. This is who's going to do this. I'm going to delegate to this. And you're like, yes! I love it! (laughs) But Mary. Mary, Mary. She doesn't seem to see any of this. Mary is totally relaxed. Mary is totally lost in conversation. And Mary, my friends, is totally oblivious, totally impractical. Like, if you ask her, where's dinner going to come from? She's like, I don't know, where? <laughs> I've known a lot of Mary's. Now, l- let's be clear here. Mary is not lazy. Mary is oblivious, and that's very different. She gets so lost in the moment that she doesn't realize that dinner won't fix itself. She, she, it doesn't, if you go to Mary's house, it's going to be a mess. Like, if you look at her sink, it's going to be piled high with dishes. If you open her fridge, you're going to find, like, two-month-old takeout in there. It's just gross. But is Mary worried about this? No. Mary doesn't care. Mary cares about relationships. And here's the thing about Mary. Her relationships are beautiful. So if you ask Mary, "What, what does the Lord want from you, Mary? She's like, from me? Like, the question doesn't even register. Like, what what do you mean? The Lord wants something from me. She is completely oblivious to all that needs to be done. And so she sits. So we have Martha and Mary. But let's be clear here. This is certainly, there certainly is. And if you've lived long enough, you know. There's certainly a personality type thing going on here. But if you look in the text, it's more than just personality profiles here. Um, there's a term here. It says, Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. This is a technical term. This is a phrase for a rabbi-disciple relationship, a, a teacher-student relationship that was common in, in that time in Judaism. So we have this quote from, from this time period, a, a book called the Mishnah, which kind of uh, is the, the written traditions of Jewish faith from about this time period, a little earlier even. And it says this. Here's a quote. Let your house be a meeting house for the sages and sit amidst the dust of their feet and drink in their words with thirst. And this is what's happening. Mary and Martha opens her house to the rabbi. The great rabbi Jesus has come and Mary sits there at her feet and, she, and she's drinking in his words with thirst. Now there's one, there's one, one issue in this though that we might not register She's just invited herself into the rabbi-disciple relationship. And in the first century, women weren't invited into that. Do you see this? Ma- Ma- Mary's wrong on, on two levels here. You know, in that culture, first of all, where should she be? She's not where she should, should be doing what she should be doing. She should be in the kitchen helping to fix the food. But she's doing exactly what she's not supposed to be doing. She's sitting at the feet of the rabbi. She's invited herself into a relationship with him as his disciple. Martha can't take it anymore, so we read in verse 40. She came up, uh, she came up, so. Martha can't stand it anymore. This is going on. She's getting everything ready. Mary's just sitting there on the floor. So she storms up to Jesus, and this is what it says. She came up to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Lord, don't you care that my sister is being oblivious and selfish and presumptuous to think she can be your disciple? Lord, do you see what she's doing? Lord, do you see what I'm doing? Do you see what just happened? Somehow, in preparing a meal that she thinks she's doing for Jesus, somehow in trying to offer her best to Jesus to serve Jesus, she's just twisted up her relationship with her sister, with herself, and with Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is in her home. He's in her home. Like, this should be the best day of her life. But it isn't, is it? This is a terrible day. Like, like look at it. She, she has no peace. She's distracted. She's mad at her sister. And it seems that she's convinced that Jesus doesn't care about any of this and won't do what's right. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. Uh, do you remember last week, if you want to, in Hebrew, or in their idiom, if you want to intensify a word, what do you do? You double it. So it's not just good, but it's good, good. You don't just die, you die, die. It's not just holy, but it's holy, holy. And he says to her, Martha. Martha. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better. Literally, she's chosen the better meal. Like, you're fixing a meal in there. She just chose the better portion, the better meal, and it will not be taken away from her. I like this slide. Let's get one thing straight. Martha is not evil. She has her heart set on doing good things for Jesus, but somehow, in the midst of doing good things for Jesus, she's missed the fact that what Jesus wants most from her is not her food, but it is her. Somehow, in her well-intentioned work for the Lord, she has believed the lie that Jesus needs her that he needs her help. And let's get one thing straight, to quote my father. He is the God of the universe, and he doesn't need your help. Like, before you were born, somehow he managed, and after you die, somehow he'll get along. Like, one chapter before we read this, you know what Jesus is doing? He gives the disciples a test like they're sitting there. They got a couple fish and some loaves of bread There's 5,000 people and like how are we gonna feed them all? And Jesus like you feed them, huh? They're like we can't! That's the point. No, you can't. But I can and he feeds the 5,000 If he wanted a meal he could make a meal (laughs) He creates by willing it by speaking things into existence God doesn't need her help, and God doesn't need our help, which begs the question if he doesn't need her help, why did he just come to her house? He didn't come for her food, he came for her. And this might sound like a small nuance, but this is so important. So let's pull this up to 2016, something we can relate to marriage. Right? So, a lot of you are young couples, newly married. So, you hear their stories, what happens, they go off in some super romantic, you know, location, and then he's like, I love you, I want to give myself to you, I want to be married to you forever, will you marry me? She says yes, and blah, 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 and then I put them through the horrors of premarital counseling, and then they get married. (laughs) Now, if you've been married for more than a few weeks, and some of you haven't, (laughs) if you've been married for more than a few weeks, you know that marriage is more than like a romantic getaway where you stare into each other's eyes and sit at each other's feet all day, right? There's there's a list of things to do. Like, you got chores. You got duties. I got duties. We got to divide and conquer on this. Somebody's got to mow the lawn. Somebody's got to take out the trash. Somebody's got to throw out that two-month-old takeout. Like, it needs to happen or the house is just going to, like, we're going to get infections and things in here. This is going to be terrible. So, you have to do chores. There are things. You have to serve one another, but if you go along too far and your marriage is only about what you do, it's only about I'll do this and you do this, I'll pay this and you pay this. If it's only a, an exchange of goods and services, then that's not marriage. So we see this too often and, and the, uh, the couple have been married And she's just like at her wits end With a workaholic husband And she's just She breaks down one day and says I just want to know Do you even love me anymore? And what's his response? He blows up and says What do you mean? I work 70 hours a week To provide for our family Everything I do is for you But he's missing something She didn't want his money She wants him I've seen it on the other side, too. I've seen the uber-successful wife who is so fed up with her good-for-nothing husband that she kicks him out. And when you dig in a little, you find why. Because she really wants what he could do for her. She doesn't want him. And both of these are twisted and broken and a perversion, and they are not marriage. When marriage A parent-child relationship or even friendship becomes what I do for you and not I'm giving myself to you. Do you hear the difference? Not what I do for you, but I'm giving myself to you. When, when, When it gets changed, when that gets out of relationship, relationships get twisted into some form of a business agreement or some quid pro quo or some kind of contract. Like it twists the relationship so that children become investments and you better not fail me. Friends become business contacts and and potential leads. So I got to become friends with them because they're going to give me connections. Parents become loan officers. (laughs) So you might be thinking, you know, what's so wrong with this? This is not that big a deal. But just, just to be clear, just to be clear, the difference between I will give you this if you do this for me. I will do this for you and you will do this for me and I give myself to you and you give yourself to me. It's the difference between prostitution and marriage, friends. And there's a world of difference in that. So if this is true in marriage and parenting and friendships, what do you think this kind of thinking does to our relationship with God? When Martha focuses all on the things that she feels she must do for Jesus, her relationship gets twisted and bent into something that it was never supposed to be. Martha's providing goods and services for Jesus, and then she's expecting something in return. Jesus, Mary owes me. She's supposed to be helping me right now. Jesus, you owe me. You're supposed to be honoring me for what I did. Like I could give you a bill right now. She's judging her sister And she feels wronged by Jesus. But friends, this is not the gospel. The gospel is not an exchange of goods and services. The gospel says we have nothing to give God except our broken, sinful selves. And God says, that's what I want. I want you. I want to redeem you. Now, it is a great exchange, So let's be clear, it is a great exchange, but it's not an exchange of goods and services like, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. It's an exchange of persons. I am yours and you are mine. So you give God your broken, sinful life, all that you have, all that you are, and in exchange, he gives us his son, who he then sends to the cross to take our punishment, to take our guilt and our shame that we deserve and then raises him from the dead so that we can have a newness of life, of hope in him, so that we can have the spirit of Christ, so that we can have the life of Christ, so that we can say... I have been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Jesus Christ now lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Therefore now my life, not because of who I am, but because of who he is, can now be filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. It's an exchange of lives. And can I just say that it's a really good deal. In fact, it's really good news what does God want from you he wants you if Martha is going to benefit from the fact that Jesus Christ just showed up in her living room she has to stop what she's doing stop being distracted by all the good but but lesser things and she has to stop trying to do things for him She has to undo the lie that Jesus needs her help. If she's going to benefit from his presence in her life, she doesn't need to do all these things. In fact, there's only one thing is needed. Only one thing. So what does Jesus say to her? He says, Mary has chosen the better portion. It's the image of she's in there working on some meal, but Mary's eating a better meal that there's a, something better sitting at the feet of Jesus than there is even than food. So, so let's get this. Um, it's almost like Jesus wants us to believe that sitting with him is better than eating a really good meal. That his words are better than life. That better is one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. It's almost like Jesus wants us to believe that it would be better for you and I to physically starve to death than live lives outside of his presence. So Jesus takes um, one of the most essential things in life, right? Food. doesn't get more basic than that. Literally, you will die without food eventually. And he takes one of the best possible motives you could have for focusing your life on food. I'm Using this food to serve Jesus, right? I'm serving Jesus. It doesn't get better than that. So so he takes the most basic need, food. And he takes the best possible reason for focusing on food, serving him. And then he says, even the essential things, even food, even the really, really good things, they need to be neglected if they get in your way of experiencing my presence. It's as if Jesus expects us to drop everything if they get in the way of meeting him. So, uh, don't miss this. Martha, Martha may be telling herself that she's putting Jesus first by serving him. You and I may be telling ourselves that we're putting Jesus first because we're serving him. But if our service, if her service gets in the way of giving ourselves to him, of experiencing his presence, then maybe our service isn't for Jesus. Isn't this just like a punch in the gut? (laughs) It's terrible. I always read this passage and I just hate it. I'm like, bring me more Martha's! If, if this is true for Martha, if it's true that Martha is missing out on Jesus because of her heroic acts of service, what would Jesus say to my stupidly busy, multitasking, overly activistic life? If fixing dinner for Jesus shouldn't pull us away from sitting at his feet, then what would he say to all the stuff, all the entertainment, all the trinkets we shove our lives full of? Maybe it's just me. So what are we supposed to do with this? Um, The the, the pressing question is, should we just stop serving Jesus then? If it's getting in the way, maybe we should. And the answer is no. (laughs) No. All of you should go sign up for children's ministry right after service, right now. (laughs) Um, Sitting at the feet of Jesus and serving Jesus are not contradictory, and they shouldn't be. At the end of her life, uh, what does Mary do? After she sits at his feet, Her heart's in sync with Jesus. And when he comes in, she knows what none of the other disciples know. She knows he's going to go to the cross. And she does this beautiful act of service for him, anointing him for going to the cross. In fact, it's so beautiful. Jesus is like, hey, this is going to be included in the gospel. The whole world is going to know about this woman and this act forever. That's how beautiful her act of service is. So service and sitting at Jesus' feet, they're not contradictory. Jesus is called the servant of God. The Apostle Paul refers to himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. You will hardly find someone more driven and hardworking than the Apostle Paul. So they should never contradict. But, but, but. If we believe that Jesus somehow needs us. That he needs us to save the world. That it's somehow dependent on our efforts. That's a lie. If you believe that your friend is going to go to heaven or hell because you serve them? That's a lie. And it's a lie that's going to twist your soul into knots. It's going to destroy your relationship with others. And it will ruin your relationship with God. So here's the question. What can we do to protect ourselves from missing out on Jesus' presence in our lives? Like, what do we do to protect ourselves from believing in this lie that God somehow needs us? So, what can we do to make sure that we don't miss out on the fact that Jesus promises to be with us always? Um, here's, here's a novel idea. What if, just, just saying, what if we set aside all of our distractions and sat at the feet of Jesus. What if, and now here, this is, this is kind of radical, listen up. What if we took one whole day per week? And for that one day, we decided we're going to set aside all distractions, anything that gets in the way, and for this one day every week, I'm going to stop trying to achieve things, stop trying to serve God, and I'm just going to sit and enjoy Him. I think someone practiced this before. I think they called it something like Sabbath or something. Yeah. And what if on top of that we said, you know, it's, Sabbath is great, but I want to every day sit at Jesus' feet. And so maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes every day. I just carved out, that's all, just 10, 15, 20 minutes. Carved out time where I'm actually going to sit at his feet and, and drink in his words thirstily. Maybe, maybe by developing the habit of reading and reflecting on scripture. What if we did that? I have to ask Dave Wiedis' question here. If you can't stop doing all your stuff for one day a week, if you can't practice Sabbath, what does that say about you and your view of God? If you can't take 10, 15 minutes a day to sit at the feet of Jesus, what does that say? And I don't say this to guilt you because this is not about achieving. The whole point is that it's not about serving But could it be, if you can't give up that time, if you can't stop, if you're so distracted, could it be that the stuff you're doing is more important to you than Jesus? I can't answer this for you, but I don't want you to leave here today without asking the question. That's the question we started with. What do I believe that God wants from me? Do you think he wants your service? Or do you think he wants you? Let's pray. Father, uh, we are worried and upset about many things, many things, many things, and we are distracted and pulled in so many directions, Lord, and our world just multiplies this, and our cell phones, and our families, and our uh, complex of schools, and and kids, and all the different relationships, God, and we have so many good things, not just bad things, but good things, pulling us away from you constantly. Lord, I pray that you would just, I pray that you'd test our hearts in this, I pray that you'd allow us to see your goodness, that you are better than the best meal. You are better than the best act of service or the best thing we could achieve. God, I I pray especially for those right now who struggle to believe that you would want them, that you would want to be with them. God, I pray that even now you would work in their hearts that your love would break through that shell, that they would know that you want to be with them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.